Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Wonderful to have you along with us on this Wednesday afternoon or whenever you happen to be listening to the podcast. Uh, it is the month of St. Joseph, and we would be remiss if we didn't speak a little bit about the foster father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we're going to talk about St. Joseph a little later. Uh, <clears throat> the consecration of the Immaculate Heart of Mary to the world, especially Russia and the Ukraine, uh, has taken place, and there are some folks who are super critical before and are still being critical now, no surprise to anybody, I suppose. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, peace and about the, I think, real in present danger of discouragement and the uh, opposing virtue of perseverance. So we'll talk about that as well. Now, this last Sunday, <clears throat> I always uh, talk about the gospel from the, the Sunday uh, that began the week. And uh, in the, well, in all forms, uh, every rite of the Mass, it was uh, the fourth Sunday of Lent. It is in the Latin rite, Litare Sunday, comes from the word rejoice, which is taken from the, uh, the introit, rejoice, O Jerusalem, and come together, all you that love her, rejoice with joy. Uh, you that have been in sorrow, that you may exult and be filled from the breasts of your consolation. I was glad at the things that were said unto me, we shall go into the house of the Lord. This fourth Sunday of Lent, Litari Sunday, serves the same purpose as Gaudete Sunday in Advent. It's a, it's a brief respite from the penitential atmosphere of the season. And this is reflected in the, uh, the optional uh, colors, the lobster liturgical color of the of rose, right? The rose-colored vestments, violet being the color of penance because it's a combination of of the red of martyrdom and the blue of sadness, right? We know blue represents sadness. We, you know, in our, even our own culture, we say that somebody who's depressed has the blues. We will say, and uh, our, our Lady of Sorrows is dressed in blue, uh, and. Uh, uh, the rose color is just that violet with some of the blue taken out, right? So they, they sort of uh, uh, roll back the sadness. And it's symbolic of the church taking this opportunity to remind us that even in the midst of our penance, even in the midst of our Lenten sacrifice, uh, we are anticipating the joy of Easter. We are preparing for the celebration of the resurrection. And that's why we don't fast on the Sundays of Lent, because every Sunday is a commemoration of Easter Sunday. Also, at this um, midway point in Lent, it's a great time to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off if we have fallen, that is, if we've uh, failed in our Lenten observance, right? You know, uh, you decided you weren't going to eat chocolate or drink soda pop or, or, you know, whatever it might be that you, uh, quote-unquote, gave up for Lent. You know, oftentimes uh, we we don't keep our New Year's resolution or uh, faithfully keep our Lenten observance. But uh, this is the time not to give up, but to redouble our commitment, right? Remember, our Lord fell three times on the way to Calvary. So, you know, uh, he understands that uh, we fall, but we expect us to pick ourselves up. You know, the very first words that Jesus speaks in his public ministry is repent or do penance and believe in the gospel. Now, speaking of which, the traditional gospel for Letari Sunday in the extraordinary form is the feeding of the 5,000 from the Gospel of John. Now, um, I've spoken often about this gospel on this program. I mean, its importance as a sign 
of uh, the Eucharist, which Jesus makes explicit the next day at the synagogue uh, uh, Capernaum in his Bread of Life discourse. And consequently, uh, because it's a sign of the Eucharist, because it's so clearly uh, uh, manifested as a sign of the Eucharist in our, our Lord's own words in the Eucharistic discourse, um, the, the, I've also expressed how much I detest the, the modern miracle of sharing interpretation that, uh, that would reduce the miracle of the loaves and fishes to, uh, you know, our Lord guilting a bunch of stingy people into sharing their lunch with each other. Right, and I don't really feel the need or, or have the desire to rehearse that again at this time. Now, coincidentally, I was unable to assist at the Extraordinary Forum this week. I was obliged to go to a Novus Ordo Mass on Sunday. And so uh, this week, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel reading from the fourth Sunday of Lent in uh, year C of the Ordinary Form, which is the uh, parable of the prodigal son. It's taken from Luke 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all crowding around to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Therefore he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that I will inherit. And so the father divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered together everything he had and traveled to a distant country, where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissolute living. When he had spent it all, a severe famine afflicted that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the local inhabitants, who sent him to his farm to feed the pigs. He would have willingly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired workers have more food than they can consume, while here I am dying of hunger? I will depart from this place and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he set out for his father's house. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring out the finest robe we have and put it on him. Place a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now the elder son had been out in the fields, and as he returned and drew near the house, he could hear the sounds of music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and inquired what all this meant. The servant replied, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder son then became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he said to his father in reply, All these years I have worked like a slave for you 
and I never once disobeyed your orders. Even so, you have never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returns after wasting his inheritance from you on prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are with me always, and everything I have is yours. But it was only right that we should celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he has been found. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. You know, the, the parable of the prodigal son is one of the most beloved of the stories of Jesus. And it's well chosen, I think, for Litari Sunday, especially if we've fallen in our Lenten observance. Because in the parable, Jesus shows us all the misery of sin, the abandonment, the solitude, the suffering, and despair. And then this parable describes the, the path of conversion. And finally, the great certitude of our faith, which is that it's God who awaits sinners. See, the, the Father saw him when he was still afar off. He was looking for his conversion. You know, beyond all human hope, God holds for every person the unfailing affection of a good and kind father for his beloved child. He awaits the child and he welcomes him joyously. And it's also easy to see you know, in the uh, discontent of the elder son the anger of the Pharisees at the welcome that Jesus extended towards sinners. So let's break it down. We begin to fall away from God by allowing unlawful desires to take possession of our heart. In consequence, we will soon come to regard uh, God's commandments as so many restraints, and we start to long for this greater liberty, which is really license. And it follows that then we would lose our taste for prayer and for the Word of God, and we start to imagine that we'd be happier if we could live according to our own will and, and live according to our disordered passions, which, of course, is the shortest route to unhappiness. Now, that inward separation from God is quickly followed by outward separation. We reject the friendship of, of good people. Uh, we neglect to go to church. We don't receive the sacraments. Uh, we start following our own way. And it's by transgressing God's commandments that we go into that far distant country. You know, namely, we're going further and further from God. St. Augustine said the far country of the parable uh, represents forgetfulness of God. And God lets the sinner go his way. I mean, he's given us free will. He doesn't want a, a forced obedience, but an obedience that proceeds from love. And so, like the, uh, the prodigal son, in our forgetfulness, you know, as we forget God, it causes us to squander our fortune, which is to say the, the, the natural and supernatural gifts that we have received, right? By, by abandoning our supernatural gifts, by neglecting the sacraments and, and the prayer and the Word of God, and then using our natural gifts of uh, health and our, you know, our physical powers, our, our intellect, to offend God. So the sinner, having forsaken the service of God, falls into the service of Satan and the lowest of his passions. And we'll pick it up there when we come back on the other side, talking about the parable of the prodigal son on this uh, fourth week of Lent. Also, uh, later on in the program, we're going to talk a bit about St. Joseph before March is over, and also about the danger of discouragement and the peace that we can find in our Lord Jesus Christ. So all that and more when we return right after this.
I'm not here. There I am. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about the parable of the prodigal son here in this fourth week of Lent and uh, the consequences of turning away from God, uh, as our Lord explains them through this parable uh, of the prodigal son who squanders his fortune the way that we squander our natural and supernatural gifts, and uh, the sinner, having forsaken the service of God, falls into the service of Satan. I don't, often, I don't often or ever <laughs> quote Bob Dylan, but he had that song, famously, you you, you got to serve somebody, right? And so you can serve God or you can become the slave of your lowest passions, which in the parable are represented by the swine, the pigs that he has to, uh, he's obliged to feed. Because the more we obey our passions, okay, the more we feed the pigs, so to speak, the more dissatisfied we become. Uh, the, the prodigal son has has fallen into, into dissipation. He's he's uh, he's squandered his fortune. He's he's feeding the pigs, uh, but no pleasure of the senses can give him happiness, and he feels the void in his heart. It's that spiritual hunger, which he's powerless to satisfy. Uh, the prodigal son, in essential, you know, put in simply, he he doesn't know any peace. All he knows is uh, that he's miserable and hateful to himself and. And he bitterly tastes the words of uh, Jeremiah the prophet, who said, Your wickedness will bring about your punishment, and your infidelities will condemn you. Therefore, concentrate your thoughts and see how bitter it is to forsake the Lord your God. And so, the sinner's return, uh, his, you know, his repentance, his return to God, begins with an examination of conscience. He examines his heart. And then like the prodigal, uh, the sinner has to enter into himself, face the, the seriousness and the number of his sins, and then by the help of God's grace, confess that his conduct has been wrong and ungrateful and, and foolish, and that he's miserable simply because he's forsaken God. I mean, you'll find all of this in the preparation for communion, in the act of contrition, and of course, uh, not for communion, but confession, rather, in the sacrament of penance, Right? Um, and he has to try to recall the joy and the peace that were his before he fell into sin, and then look to the future, look to death and and judgment and eternity. And and at that point, that's when you know there will rise within a longing desire to be at peace with God, and have a, a sorrow and a repentance for for separating himself from God in the first place. So the prodigal son lost a great deal, but he didn't lose faith in his father's mercy. That's the important point, right? I mean, we're, it's, it's symbolizing his, his, his spiritual hunger, but he says to himself, um, you know, there are, how many servants are there in my father's house that have more than enough to eat? I should go and, and, and say, you know, it's, it's, it's all my fault. I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be called your son. Please just let me be one of the hired hands. All right, and again, this, this is about um, contrition and repentance. And um, he said, I will depart from this place and go to my father, right? That's the resolution made by the prodigal. And his resolution was, was sincere because he, he determined to, number one, go home and thus avoid the occasions of sin. Number two, to humble himself and confess his sins and be willing to obey the father. And then number three, by doing penance, right? He said, I'll be a hired hand. I'll, I'll, I'll do hard work, you know, that's uh, representing like self-abasement, that, you know, you're going to do penance 
once you made your confession. So this contrition of his was real and, and supernatural. And then he, so he rushed to cast himself at his father's feet and confess his sins and implore his pardon. And, and obviously the, the confession of sins is the necessary expression of contrition. It's the, it's the indispensable condition of forgiveness. And it's also a wonderful gift. You know, this, this is a season where, where uh, Catholics are, if they've not been to confession in the year, and they need to go, and if you haven't been to confession in a year, guess what? You probably need to go. Uh, you know, this is a perfect time to, to um, meditate on this gospel. Because just like the father in the parable goes to meet the prodigal son, Christ is there. He's waiting in the confessional, right, through the ministry of the priest to meet us with his grace and his mercy and forgive our sins and give back to us that gift of peace. All right, so it's, you, you know, you look in the, in the um, parable, too. And I'm sorry, I'm going on on this. I, you know, it's not something, a uh, uh, gospel that we talk about a lot on the program. It's just, it's just so rich. Because, again, the symbolism of the servants, right? It's through the hands of, of the Father's servants, which, you know, obviously that would be analogous to the, to the priesthood. It, it's it's through, through his, the hands of his servants that he reclothes the prodigal with the robe of innocence, right? That would be sanctifying grace. And, and adorns him with, with supernatural virtues. That's the, symbol of the, of the symbolism of the ring. And then he enables him to walk justly before God. That's the, you know, put sandals on his feet. And then finally, God prepares a feast for the converted sinner, right? Giving to him the Lamb of God, the nourishment of his soul in Holy Communion. And the Lord God rejoices and calls on his angels and saints to rejoice with him because his child who was dead, right, who had fallen into mortal sin, who had lost the supernatural life of grace, um, is now uh, found, right? He he's, uh, was under the sentence of eternal death, but he's alive again. He is once more a, a beloved child of God and, and an heir to heaven. And though we have offended God so grievously and so often, he has not, you know, he doesn't reproach us. He forgives us everything. He restores to us our former rights and, and, and our dignity of sonship. And, and when you think about it, God alone can love in this way. And, and I think sometimes to us this sort of love is, is almost inconceivable. And he portrays that narrow-mindedness in the conclusion of the parable. The elder son can't understand his father's joy. He murmurs at it. He refuses to take part in it. He even professes to believe that his father prefers the, the prodigal to himself, right? Who is the, the faithful and obedient and industrious one. Uh, and, but by that behavior, the elder son um, uh, signifies the jealousy of the Pharisees who considered themselves to be just and who murmured at the, uh, the deep interest that Jesus took in sinners. And by the Father's answer in the parable, our Lord shows how very um, unjustifiable such jealousy is. Right? The just person ought to think of the great happiness which he's enjoyed of always being in the love and grace of God. And, and if we really, you know, if we try to realize the infinite love of God for every soul that he's created then we will rejoice with God as often as a soul which has been lost is found. Jesus said in Luke 15, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. 
as the angels rejoice over the return of the prodigal, so ought we to rejoice over the conversion of sinners. I have offended God, and so have you. Perhaps not so grievously as the prodigal son, but like him, you have also experienced the Father forgiving you your sins in the Holy Sacrament of Penance. I'm an adult convert. I wept through my first confession. And afterward, I made a heartfelt thanksgiving to our Lord for instituting the priesthood and instituting the sacrament of penance so that having sinned grievously after baptism, I could go and and return to the state of grace. Making a thanksgiving after confession, boy, that's a good practice. There's, There's probably one right there in your prayer book. Bring it to church with you. And, and, and make a thanksgiving, or, you know, pray in your own words. It doesn't matter. The point is that um, you make a devout thanksgiving after you go to confession because you don't want to repay the love of God with some fresh ingratitude. Right? We should have that attitude of gratitude. We should show God um, how much we appreciate his gifts of grace. I mentioned earlier that on the way to the cross, our our Lord fell three times, and each time he got up and continued on his way to Calvary. And the fourth week of Lent is a time for us to renew our commitment to prayer and almsgiving, and especially uh, uh, to renew our uh, Lenten sacrifice if we've uh, failed to live up to that the way we should. The most important thing to remember is not to be discouraged. To fail in your Lenten sacrifice is a powerful reminder that despite our good resolutions, we sin (laughs) repeatedly. But the sufferings of Christ assure us of forgiveness if only we return to God with a contrite heart. Now is the time to repent of having offended God and to ask his help to avoid sin in the future. Okay, um, I haven't done a medieval mentality segment in a while, so I want to uh, take a moment, talk about a, uh, an old medieval legend. You know, once upon a time, Lucifer was thinking about going out of business. So he called together all the uh, lesser imps and demons and began to auction off his tools. And the younger devils wanted to become masters of temptation, and they, they bid, but uh, kind of lackluster uh, lackluster bidding uh, on these uh, uh, tools, you know, anger, lust, untruth, and so forth. These things all all sold for uh, you know paltry amounts until the very final tool of Satan went onto the onto the block, and then the bidding became fast and furious and ferocious, and each of the uh, devils tried to outbid each other because they knew that here was a a, a tool that would make the capture of souls just as easy as pie. In fact, Lucifer decided that since they were all so anxious, maybe he'd better not sell that tool and stay in business after all. So what was the coveted tool, you ask? What was the the coveted weapon of Satan that uh, all the demons want to wield? It was discouragement. Because when you're discouraged, you quit trying. And when you quit trying, you're licked. As that great theologian Tim Allen said in uh, the movie Galaxy Quest, never give up, never surrender. All through our Lord's teaching, and think about this, we hear him telling us again and again to never quit trying. Don't forgive seven times. 
or, or 70 times, but 70 times seven times, which is, you know, the, the Hebrew way of saying always. You ought to pray and not to faint. The devil will try and sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You remember Jesus' story uh, of, of the man who kept knocking on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night until he finally opened it. Uh, or, or, the, or the judge who finally gives a woman a just judgment, not because he's concerned about justice, but just so that she'll leave him alone. Right? And, or the man who kept crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, even when the crowd told him to stop. And he wouldn't until Jesus answered. All of these are examples of the virtue of perseverance. Perseverance. And we're going to talk about that when we come back, especially in light of the uh, recent consecration of the world, and especially Russia and Ukraine, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Also, coming up later, we're going to talk about Good St. Joseph and uh, this month that is dedicated to him. So all that and more when we come back. Lots still to go here on uh, No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about discouragement as one of the devil's uh, weapons, and one of the best ways to, uh, to combat that is right there in the act of contrition. It's the firm purpose, the firm purpose of amendment, right, to amend our lives and the resolution to avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin, right? And if that's so, uh, social media or certain websites or whatever, then, then so be it. Um, the first step to discouragement is this, this constant criticism, this constant drumbeat uh, of, of negativity and criticism toward those who have been called by God to help you get to heaven. And that includes this, this mind-boggling and, I'm sorry to say, ongoing criticism of Pope Francis's consecration to the world, especially Russia and Ukraine, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. You know, some of these, the, the holier-than-thou Catholics, uh, you know, they were, they were lined up to tell us how this consecration was no good. You know, uh, I think, and you know what? Some criticism is, is uh, legitimate, even necessary, I think, especially when there's a danger to souls. We've been critical of, of uh, the Holy Father on this program for some of his words and actions, Okay. Um, but, you know, criticism is one thing, but you can go beyond that. You can develop an actual critical spirit. And, and we've seen that. There are people who, who just can't allow themselves to accept that Pope Francis has, could do anything that's good. You know, and of course, there's a whole coterie of these people that can't believe he's still, you know, he's even Pope at all. Benedict Sixteenth is still Pope, or, you know, we haven't had a Pope since, you know, John Twenty-Third, whatever it is. And like I say, some, some criticism is legitimate, but the critical spirit is dangerous because it sows discouragement. And, and by doing that, whether they know it or not, uh, some of these folks are wielding the devil's strongest weapon. Now, I, I, I uh, answered some of these uh, criticisms in detail last week, so I'm not going to rehearse it all again. And, and, you know, if you're feeling discouraged especially, and if you haven't heard that program, I do encourage you, to, to listen to it at your convenience. You know, it's there on the VMPR website, or you can go to any of the podcast platforms and find it. Uh, 
Um, you know, because there was some things that I said on the program that I was not hearing um, from other quarters and that I thought really needed to be said. But, uh, but you know, when it comes to the consecration of, um, you know, to the Immaculate Heart, I suspect that, that one of the things that Catholics are longing for is this era of peace. You know, Our Lady said Russia will be, the Holy Father will consecrate Russia. Russia will be converted. There'll be an era of peace. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. Okay? And they're looking to that. They're longing for that era of peace. But I have to ask you, what does that represent? Does this era of peace represent some, some universal absence of conflict in the church and the world? You know? Or, or is it something else? Perhaps even something better. Before his ascension into heaven, our good Lord said to the apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, be not afraid. And those words hold true. Bishop Sheen tells us that at the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel asked Mary to be the the, the mother of God, that all heaven held its breath waiting for her answer, because our redemption, everything hinged on, on her fiat. And Mary gave her fiat, her, her yes to God, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And at that moment, when Jesus became man under her immaculate heart, the peace of Christ entered the world. At his birth, the angels sang, Glory to God in highest heaven and on earth peace to all those on whom his favor rests. Right? In other words, those who accept his gift of grace. Now, I know that you're saying, wow, wait, the, the traditional translation is peace on earth to men of good will. Perfectly legitimate. But the thing is, it's, that's not meant to contrast God's peace with human good will. Because the fact of the matter is, worldly conflict did not cease with our Savior's incarnation or his birth, or even after his suffering death and resurrection. True peace is a divine gift to which Christ gives us access in our communion with God through grace, through the sacraments, through prayer. And so the renewed era of peace inaugurated by the fulfillment of the requests of heaven may well represent a special outpouring of grace which will enable those of good will, all those on whom his favor rests, to more fully acquire the peace of Christ. And see, this is good news. And by the way, you don't have to wait. The counsel first offered by Thomas Akempis in the Middle Ages tells us how to acquire peace here and now. It's in chapter 11, book one of the Imitation of Christ. And I I encourage you to hear these words as addressed to us in the 21st century, especially those of us who are being discouraged or bent out of shape because of social media, which, let's face it, is uh, primarily gossip. He says, we would indeed have peace if we would attend to our affairs. How can you remain in peace when you deliberately interfere in other people's business and seek worldly occupation with seldom a thought to interior recollection? I wonder how many of us spend more time in prayer than we spend on social media or, you know, watching television or whatever. He says, the humble and the single-hearted are truly blessed and will have abundant peace. He said, the reason why the saints were so perfectly recollected is that they always sought to abstain from worldly desires, leaving themselves free to give their whole heart to God. 
but we're so absorbed in our own passions and too concerned with passing things. We seldom overcome even one single fault. We're slow to make progress and therefore remain cold and indifferent. If we would die to self-love, soon we would enjoy spiritual things and then we would experience heavenly contemplation. Um... Skipping down, if only, and this is something I've quoted often on this program, if only we would exert ourselves and take a firm stand in this battle, we would see how God comes to our aid, for he's always ready to help those who put their trust in him. He even provides occasions for us to do battle so that we will overcome and be victorious, right? He allows our trials and tribulations, and we need to see them as opportunities, to grow in holiness, uh, uh, to, 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 to experience the grace of God. Because, as he says, if our religion consists only in outward observances, our piety will soon come to an end. We had better lay our acts to the root that being purged from our passions, we may, we may possess our soul in peace. The peace of Christ, okay? You know, what that requires is perseverance. Peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged. And think of Sister Lucy. I mean, as long as we're talking about the consecration um, to the Immaculate Heart. The other little seers, Francisco and Jacinta, died in 1919 and 1920, respectively. But Lucy lived until 2005. Our Lady asked uh, for the collegial consecration of Russia in 1929 in order to forestall the Second World War and, and to keep Russia from, from spreading her errors around the world. Talk about atheism and, and, uh, and socialism, communism. But the Pope who could have made that consecration, Pope Pius XI, chose not to. And, and having lived through World War I already, she now had to live through World War II. And it would be 55 years, 55 years of watching the errors of Russia spread around the world. China, Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam. Uh, 55 years of patience and prayer and perseverance before Sister Lucy saw the day that Pope St. John Paul II performed a collegial consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And even then, as the critics are quick to point out, he didn't mention Russia by name. But Sister Lucy wasn't discouraged because she understood that Jesus gives us the peace that is not of this world. And that's no nonsense. All right, March is almost over, and we would certainly be remiss uh, if we didn't talk a bit about good St. Joseph. You know, March is especially dedicated to St. Joseph. Last year, my family made the consecration to St. Joseph. With uh, We got that book from Father Calloway, um, Father Donald Calloway's book, Consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Fathers. And, and it was, and it was a, a good experience. It's not unlike the, um, in fact, it's very like the Consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, um, or Total Consecration to Mary of uh, St. Louis de Montfort. 
And then a few years ago, you know, I, my wife and I did that. And then a few years ago, the whole family made uh, the consecration to Mary using Father Gately's 33 Days to Morning Glory. All right. The point is that, um, that Joseph and Mary are so intimately connected. You know, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to ask her to be the mother of Jesus, to be the mother of God. And she said, yes. Okay. Well, St. Joseph also received a visit from an angel asking him to agree to God's plan. And the gospel says, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Just as Mary said, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to thy word, Joseph did likewise, as we can see through his obedience to the angel. St. Elizabeth said uh, about Mary, Blessed is she who believed the promise made her by the Lord. And we can say the same about St. Joseph. Which brings us to another point about imitating St. Joseph, imitating uh, Mary and Jesus, imitating the Holy Family of Nazareth. That's a part of the message of Our Lady of America that she gave to Sister Mildred Mary Ephraim Noisel back in the 1950s. And we're going to talk about that when we come back. Uh, lots more to go here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We're going to talk more about St. Joseph. If we have time, uh, might do a little uh, Catholic kryptonite, a little uh, answer to a common objection about the Blessed Virgin, if we have time. But uh, until then, um, hang on with us, and we will be right back after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, our final segment here, talking a little bit about St. Joseph at the tail end of the month of St. Joseph, every March dedicated especially uh, to St. Joseph. And we're talking about the, um, the message of Our Lady of America, that she asked Sister Mary Ephraim to uh, tell us that she desired that um, Catholics in this country especially would imitate the virtues of the Holy Family. That's Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph. Now, the bishops of competence uh, in this matter approved devotion to Our Lady of America back in uh, May of 2020. And they, they approved it as a private devotion and not as a public devotion for one specific reason, primarily. And I'm going to just read uh, from the response of Father Regis Scanlon, from back in May of 2020, he said, and I quote, The bishops gave only one reason for denying approval for public devotion. They said that the private, uh, private revelations were in error by asserting that St. Joseph was a co-redeemer. I would like to offer some points that suggest another view is possible. First of all, what do we mean by a co-redeemer? I maintain that it is someone without whose action redemption would be impossible according to the revealed plan of God in Scripture. For example, without Mary's fiat, salvation could not have taken, uh, could not have taken place. And St. Joseph has a similar fiat, without which, says Father Scanlon, the human race would not be saved. Um, he goes on to say, actually, the concept of co-redemption involves more than Mary and St. Joseph. It involves every individual that's saved from eternal punishment. 
Just as Mary and Joseph can be seen as co-redemptrix and co-redeemer of the human race, each person is responsible through free will for cooperating with God to achieve their own personal salvation. This means every individual is truly a co-redeemer of himself or herself because God does not redeem anyone without that person's fiat or consent. Now, the, the larger point he's making, of course, that if, if Mary is co-redemptrix, that it isn't um, unreasonable to, to refer to Joseph as co-redeemer with her because, you know, it was the foster father of, of Jesus that, uh, uh, you know, he was, his part was also crucial. His part it was a sine qua non. It was, you know, without which uh, these things would not have uh, occurred. So, you know, I, hopefully, you know, there'll be further contemplation and uh, we may yet, the church may yet find that uh, Our Lady of America didn't inf- did not, in fact, make an error regarding St. Joseph after all. Uh, and we've seen what Our Lady of America said about imitating the virtues of the Holy Family. You know, but, but on, on the eve of his feast day, on the, in the eve of the feast day of uh, St. Joseph back in March of 1958, good St. Joseph himself appeared to Sister Mary Ephraim. She's the visionary that got the messages of Our Lady of America. And he spoke of the unique privilege that had been bestowed on him as the foster father of Jesus. He said, all fatherhood is blessed in his fatherhood. And he also asked that our family life be modeled on that of the Holy Family, with Jesus as the center of all its activity. And he wants us to teach our children well. And here's what he said. He told sister, dear child, I was king in the little home of Nazareth. For I sheltered within it the Prince of Peace and the Queen of Heaven. To me they looked for protection and sustenance, and I did not fail them. I received from them the deepest love and reverence, for in me they saw him whose place I took over them. So the head of the family must be loved, obeyed, and respected, and in return be a true father and protector to those under his care. In honoring, in a special way, my fatherhood, you also honor Jesus and Mary. The divine trinity has placed into our keeping the peace of the world. The imitation of the Holy Family, my child, of the virtues we practiced in our little home in Nazareth is the way for all souls to that peace which comes from God alone and which none other can give. Our Lady of America and St. Joseph appeared to Sister Mary Ephraim in the 1950s, okay, from uh, 1954 to 1959. And, you know, I, I'm going to say that that message was truly prophetic. And think about this. Our Lady's final appearance to Sister Mary Ephraim was on December 20th, 1959, which, pardon me, can, coincidentally was the day that I came into this world. Okay, it was my birthday. And her message was all about imitating the purity and imitating the virtue of the Holy Family, her purity, the, the, the virtues of St. Joseph. And now, who was thinking about the breakdown of marriage in the family in America in the 1950s? You know, um, you know her, her message was crucial. It was, it was about this crucial need for purity. And I just look at the culture then versus the culture now. The year I was born... What the top shows were like the Red Skelton Show and uh, Lassie and Father Knows Best. You know, uh, um, the number one movie that year was Ben-Hur. 
And other there was other movies in '59, but uh, North by Northwest from Alfred Hitchcock and uh, Rio Bravo with John Wayne and Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson, right? And and another biblical epic too, Solomon and Sheba came out that same year. So you know, it didn't. It looked like things were pretty healthy, but Our Lady knew what was on the horizon. Okay, she'd already prophesied the attack on marriage and the family and the scandal in the priesthood. Uh, and, and the loss of purity and the crisis of faith and morals in the church, in the world, you know, in that second half of the 20th century. She didn't, you know, uh, prophesy those things in 1959, but in 1599, under the title Our Lady of Good Success, you know, which we talked about on the program, too. And, but you look at, uh, you look at Matthew 12, or in Matthew 19, in just 12 verses, comprised of a little over than 250 words, Jesus lays out the unchanging principles on marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, uh, the prohibition against divorce, raises marriage to the level of a sacrament, right? it becomes holy matrimony, and further encourages those who are called to embrace celibacy as a, 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 a spiritually superior state. So from our Savior's own lips, we learn that marriage and perpetual virginity are two signs of the love of God for us, and we see both of these united in the first couple of the New Testament, Mary and Joseph. Joseph, you know, Mary's a model of purity. Joseph is a model of chastity. Tradition tells us that Mary was vowed to God in virginity, and as such, she, she served in the temple as a literal handmaid of the Lord. And John Paul II uh, refers to this in his exhortation on St. Joseph, Redemptoris Custos, Guardian of the Redeemer. But how could Mary combine a vow of perpetual virginity with marriage? And St. John Paul tells us they were combined through her virginal conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And of course, the, the, the Catholic clergy uh, and, and religious priests and, and sisters are still vowed to celibacy today, uh, monks too. But, but this calling is all but inexplicable to the world and to the worldly-minded. Sexual sin is so glamorized in our popular culture that people have come to accept it as normal. The chastity of, of Joseph and Mary, which would have been taken for granted in the 1950s, is now a challenge. It's, you know, it's throwing down a gauntlet in our times when, when the sanctity of marriage, the very, the very nature of marriage, even the very nature of human sexuality is being called into question. No longer respected you know, in, in the traditional understanding of what I like to call reality. So Our Lady asks us to imitate the virtues of the Holy Family, of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It's because Mary and Joseph both said yes to God that Jesus grew up in a family that taught him the true meaning of love. Holy Family didn't have it easy. No family does. But that didn't stop them from always trusting in God's plan. So we imitate their virtues and we pray for their intercession, the intercession of the Holy Family in our families. And may, may your home, my home, all homes, be like the Holy Family's happy home in Nazareth. And to that end, Jesus told, or St. Joseph rather, told Sister Mary Ephraim, quote, It is the desire of Jesus and Mary that his pure heart, so long hidden and unknown, should now be honored in a special way. He asks that we honor him on the first Wednesday of every month and pray the joyful mysteries of the rosary in memory of his life with Jesus and Mary. 
St. Joseph confirmed his crucial role in God's plan of salvation that he shared with his holy spouse, the mother of Jesus. Final note, Our Lady told Sister Mildred Mary Ephraim Noisel that making the rosary a family prayer is very pleasing to me. I ask that all families strive to do so. Brings us full circle back to Our Lady of Fatima that regardless of the Pope's consecrating Russia, the other things that she called for have to do with you and me. Making the first Saturdays, again, we talked about what the first Saturday devotion entails on this program last week, and I was also on Terry and Jesse on Friday to talk about that. don't really have the time to go into it now, but, but making the first Saturdays, five first Saturdays, and praying the rosary every day. You know, I mean, th- th- there may be a whole long string of popes who, who made some technical error, you know, in, in, their, in their consecration of the world and, and, and of Russia that, that has kept, um, you know, the, the, the particular vision of, of a handful of Catholics from coming about in a way that they think it should have, <laughs> you know. But it wouldn't have mattered anyway. I mean, it's, like, it's not like Catholics en masse are even going to Mass anymore much less that they're making the first five Saturdays or praying the daily rosary. So that's what you can do. That's what I can do. Make the first five Saturdays, say the rosary every day, right? Pray pray for this uh, uh, fallen world and for the blessed Father and the Holy Father and and, and, all, and the entire clergy and, and the laity too. All right. Best way to honor Mary and Joseph's request is to model our family life on the Holy Family. And that means to pray together as a family. And that, my dear friends, is no nonsense. Um, I was going to mention on our Facebook page uh, last week, right, as uh, people are going back and forth about the the consecration, one of our separated brethren took the occasion to uh, accuse Catholics of idolatry (laughs) and accuse us of worshiping Mary and other human beings, by which uh, I assume he means the saints. And so it's been a while since we've done a Catholic Kryptonite segment. We'll definitely do that next week. Also give a nod to St. Joseph, since it's going to be the first Wednesday of April next week. And uh, we'll be back with lots more uh, no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to, as always, just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to this program and to the other programs on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. They're all available on your favorite podcast platforms. We have a website, vmpr.org. We have a smartphone app uh, that has a number of features, including a prayer section. And we put the uh, consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary for individuals in the family by Pope Pius XII on that, uh, on that app. So you can find that there, along with a lot of other stuff. And you can make a donation to help us keep the lights on and keep bringing these programs to you. Until next time, then, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.